Welcome to the Refugee Portal Podcast, recorded at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. My name is Tarek. And I'm Yusuf. The Refugee Portal Podcast interviews, shares, and learns from the stories of refugees, as well as the perspective of academics, humanitarian workers, members of government, and other stakeholders. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewees and do not necessarily reflect those of the Refugee Portal Podcast or its hosts. All right, let's get right into it. Today we are speaking about psychedelic plant-based medication as a catalyst for healing and those suffering from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, addiction, and despair. According to the World Health Organization, every year 800,000 people commit suicide. The most recent World Drug Report states that 585,000 people died as a result of drug use in 2018. According to the Journal of the American Medical Association, given the different circumstances by which a person becomes a refugee, the rates of PTSD vary widely with any given refugee population with prevalence rates ranging 4% to 86% for PTSD and 5% to 31% for depression. On the higher end are refugees from war zones like Syria. Almost all the participants, 98.5% from Syria, had experienced at least one traumatic event, and 86.3% of them experienced three or more traumatic event types. The prevalence of post-traumatic stress disorder was about 60%. Approximately the same rate of participants, 59.4%, experienced depression. Today, we look at how psychedelic medications such as MDMA, psilocybin mushrooms, ibogaine, and ayahuasca are being used to treat the toughest forms of mental illness and what research is being done in the field, including at Johns Hopkins Hospital Research, the center believed to be the first and largest of its kind, will use psychedelics to study the mind and identify therapies for diseases such as addiction, PTSD, and Alzheimer's. A group of private donors has given $17 million to start the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research at Johns Hopkins and making it the first such research center in the U.S. and the largest research center of its kind in the world. Psychedelics are a class of drugs that produce unique and profound changes of consciousness over the course of several hours. The Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research will focus on how psychedelics affect behavior, brain function, learning and memory, the brain's biology and mood. Our guest today, Trevor Millar, is a social entrepreneur and the owner of Liberty Root Therapy Limited, a business dedicated to healing and transformation using the anti-addictive plant medicine Ibogaine and other psychedelic compounds. Trevor currently serves as the board chair for the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, MAPS Canada, and is a former executive director of the Global Ibogaine Therapy Alliance, featured in the award-winning documentary about using magic mushrooms, otherwise known as psilocybin mushrooms, and Ibaga to heal addiction called DOST. He is also a founding member of the newly formed Canadian Psychedelic Association, which can be found at psychedelicassociation.net. The Refugee Portal podcast and its hosts are not advocating illegal use of psychedelics and recommend consulting medical doctors and trained professionals. All right, Trevor... Welcome to the Refugee Portal Podcast. Thanks, Tarek. So Trevor Millar, he is the chairman of MAPS, and I first heard about psychedelics uh, in the treatment of depression and addiction and PTSD through the Tim Ferriss Podcast, and he's a, a very passionate advocate of uh, psychedelics research. And 
I admittedly skeptical uh, because thinking of drugs like, you know, magic mushrooms or psilocybin, DMT, MDMA, ecstasy, and uh, uh, these type of uh, things as more of the recreational side. And uh, what was interesting to me in the various episodes that he talked about psychedelics and all the guests that he brought on was many academics were passionate of using these natural plant-based substances to help people with their mental health issues and uh, and then they would bring on people that were helped with these uh, plant-based medicines and so you and I have connected over the last few months and you're the chairman of MAPS Canada and uh, I was watching an episode of Goop which is a, a, a TV series on Netflix uh, Gwyneth Paltrow the actress uh, is kind of organizing that uh, that show and one of the episodes, uh, one of your members, uh, one of the, fo- the executive director of BAPS Canada, he was there and he was talking about the uses of various uh, uh, psychedelics. Uh, I think uh, the one they discussed was MDMA and ayahuasca uh, to help with, again, depression, uh, addictions. And so, uh, Trevor, tell us how you got into this. Like, it's an interesting journey to, to get into this field, which, uh, again, I'll just do one more plug. Fortune magazine just came out with a 10-page spread saying that this is going to be the new multi-billion dollar industry um, as a natural alternative to healing mental health issues. And uh, this is the ground floor. And it's expected with the research and with all the credibility and academics behind it to grow bigger and bigger every year. For sure. So... Um that, that Goop episode is really cool because that's yeah. all my people. I know yeah. Mark Hayden very well, of course, and then Jillian and Richard and Sasha, who all sat with the people in Jamaica. And Mark's kind of famous to touch on the first point that you said about just the fact that you had all this skepticism around these medicines. Mark's very famous for pointing out that prior to the 1960s, all of these psychedelic plant medicines were considered pro-social. It was something that people did within their communities. It was something that was used to bring community closer together, to help individuals within communities fix their illnesses. That's the way these medicines were used for millennia. It's only, it's a recent aberration that all of a sudden these things have been demonized and the war on drugs was a very successful propaganda campaign and this happened under uh the president richard nixon in 1972 as a response to the counterculture movement and the perceived abuse of psychedelics to classify psychedelics like magic mushrooms which are natural and grow everywhere Mm -hmm. and other uh, psychedelics and classify them as class one substances like cocaine heroin and other yeah. opioids, which are, are addictive and harmful. And by having that classification uh, uh, all around the world, other countries followed suit and made these natural uh, plant-based uh, medicines uh, uh, illegal. Yeah, and, you know, was were these medicines classified because they were really truly bad for people or were they classified because it was the hippies and the anti-war movement who was using them? And, and maybe it used w- as a justification to somehow bring the, the law of the land it, down on exactly. folks that they deemed as anti-government. Exactly, exactly. So that was a recent blip, kind of this, and, and then... It was, it was this tune-in, turn-on, drop-out mentality, which was kind of antisocial. 
And that's for the first time in history that these medicines were kind of spun as an antisocial thing. So I think we're just bringing them back to the the roots. It's only, it was a 50-year deviation from the fact that we thought these medicines were bad for us. Now we're just back to the truth that has been known for millennia, which is these medicines help people to a great, great degree. And your personal story, Trevor, is an interesting one and in how you got introduced to psychedelics and then started to, to become involved with the various uh, academics and, and interested parties and stakeholders that want to help people with natural-based solutions. And I'll, I'll just back up a little bit. Um, I read a statistic that uh, uh, the fourth leading cause of death in North America is the improper prescription of pharmaceutical uh, medications and many of them are synthetic man-made uh, pharmaceuticals and they are legal and yet there are many side effects complications and death is is the the ultimate mm -hmm. uh, uh, drastic consequence of, of pharmaceutical medication now these again psychedelics to stress again these are plant-based natural uh, sources uh, that nature has created mm -hmm. uh, God has created to uh, to uh, potentially help people with all these illnesses. For sure. There are a couple man-made molecules. Okay. Um, ketamine, as an example, is a completely synthetic psychedelic. Okay. And then some of the chemicals, while MDMA, for example, I think it is it's sassafras or sarsaparilla that it's related to. So, the, you know, there are chemical deviations to these plant medicines, but still very helpful and still, you know, they're in the same... Uh, the word psychedelic means mind and or soul manifesting. And mind or and yeah, or soul so manifesting. psychedelic, psyche, if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, the first definition for psyche is soul. And then the delos, the delic part of it comes from delos, which is the Greek to manifest. So mind or soul manifesting. So I think they're all within that classification. My story on how I come to this was in 2001, post 9-11, I was very distraught with the state of the world. And I was probably 23 at the time and had been reading a lot of books on success and how to be successful and how to make money. And I just realized that pre 9-11, I would wake up every day, I would turn on the CTV news network, I would let that play in the background while I was getting ready, I would read three newspapers a day, I would get righteously pissed off at the state of the world, but I wasn't doing anything about changing the world. And then 9-11 happened, then the media got arguably worse, and um, it was about two months after 9-11, I call it an act of grace. All of a sudden, I realized holy smokes, I am driving myself crazy with this media. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And so I decided to go on a media fast. It was pre kind of internet news. So I just stopped reading those newspapers, stopped turning on the CTV news network. And at the same time said, what am I going to do to give back? So the, I was new to Vancouver at the time. The downtown east side of Vancouver looked like it could use some help. So very naively kind of... Uh, I went down and started looking at different ways that I could help that neighborhood. And that essentially turned into about a 10-year networking and researching project. I did meet a lot of important people down there. And in 2009, this plant medicine called Ibogaine came on the radar as a way to potentially help. So I had heard of Ibogaine before. Um, and to help with uh, opioid addiction. 
Yeah, recovery. yeah. So I had heard of Ibogaine before, but never really put two and two together that it might be a way to help the downtown east side. My exposure to psychedelics started very young. Um, I was 14 years old. The first time I tried half a hit of acid on the way to a movie once <laughs> with some friends. And I never really knew about the therapeutic potential benefits of psychedelics. But at the same time, I remember one time again on LSD with some friends saying, this is what adults has, have forgotten that has made the world so screwed up. <laughs> so, you know, the therapeutic benefits were shining through nonetheless. And then in the early 2000s, I was hanging out at a shop called the Urban Shaman in Vancouver and had heard of Iboga then and heard that it's a powerful, so Iboga is the plant that Ibogaine comes from. I heard it's a very powerful psychedelic, puts you on a 36 hour long trip. And I said at the time that that was something I was never going to try. And then in 2009, through a conversation with Ann Livingston at the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, I... there was a binder on the wall behind her that said Ibogaine and after all these years of searching for a way to help down there I said maybe Ibogaine's a good a good way to help. What caused you to not want to try it? What was like uh, preventing you? 36 hour long trip. (laughs) That sounds very daunting to me. You know LSD is a 12 hour long trip. Uh, That's long. Uh, Mushrooms is a good six hours. That feels long when you're in it but then to do 36 hours that sounds crazy. Plus I heard it was expensive about five hundred dollars at least for the dose and and i became it's it, it's a root and, yeah. and it's originally from africa correct yeah so it, it iboga is the plant that again has been used ceremonially for centuries by the buidi tradition in africa and they um, use it for healing they use it for all those pro-social things that i mentioned earlier And in 1962, somebody who was addicted to heroin by the name of Howard Lotsoff, he was in New York City. His chemist buddy knew that he would try anything kind of for fun. So there was no real healing intent behind this. But he said, here, why don't you try this Ibogaine stuff? And he did. And he went on this exceptionally long trip. But he came out the other end and he's like, wait a second. I haven't wanted heroin the whole time I've been on this, nor do I want it now. So that's when its anti-addictive properties were discovered by the Western world, at least. And Howard became a real champion for this medicine. He started knocking on doctors' doors. He tried to get people to pay attention to what he felt he had discovered was essentially a cure for addiction. And thankfully enough, people listened so that he formed the Global Ibogaine Therapy Alliance. He set up some standards of care and Ibogaine treatment centers started popping up around the world. Ibogaine itself was outlawed in the 1970s at the same time a lot of other psychedelics were um, in the U.S. anyway. In Mexico, it's just unscheduled, so there are quite a few Ibogaine providers in Mexico. It is legal in uh, New Zealand, is my understanding. It's legal in the Bahamas right now, is my understanding. And in Canada... It was legal for me to work with it for quite some time. So it was was listed as a natural health product in Canada from the time I opened my company, Liberty Root Therapy Limited, in uh, 2012 through until 2017. And in May of 2017, they put this medicine on the prescription drug list. So that doesn't mean it's immediately available as a prescription. It still needs to go through phase one and two 
went one, two, and three clinical trials. But it, is it uh, currently illegal or criminal, rather? Uh, let's say, is it criminal to be using it? it? It would be criminal in the same way that I couldn't give you any other prescription drug. Right, right. And, and it's, it, I have plenty of doctors who would be willing to write that prescription if it was set up within the healthcare system to be a prescription because it, it doesn't have a drug identifier number yet. And, so and, even and doctors can't prescribe it. And to stress that uh, Johns Hopkins... Uh, uh, research that they've been doing for the last number of years uh, to really that this requires professional guidance to utilize these substances in the correct manner. It's not something that somebody can go off. Just like prescription medication, unless it's prescribed by a medical practitioner, ideally in the right way, that's where the benefit is. And, and in a similar fashion with psychedelics, uh, experts that know what it is, how to utilize it, what the dosage is in the correct setting and the formalized process. That is the way that at least through the researchers and the medical practitioners that are utilizing these substances, this is how it's going to come into the mainstream. Yeah, that's the medical model. That's yeah. one way that it is gaining legitimacy. That's a big way that it's gaining legitimacy. In the same way that cannabis started coming on people's radars when people realized that this is actually a really powerful medicine that people can use, that started changing the conversation. So that's one tract on how we can make these medicines more available. When you say, I would just be careful in saying that this is the only way because there is kind of the shamanic way of working it. And, sure. you know, you don't like have to go to Peru medical school to do that necessarily. There is a different kind of training that sure. may be even more intense, but that's another avenue. And I, I don't, I try and avoid kind of any exceptionalism around this stuff too. Like, like you said, mushrooms just grow places. Yeah. So I think they're, they're readily available for humanity to, I think nature is saying, you know, God is saying here, here's the medicine growing out of this pile of crap over here. Why don't you try some? And while I think there needs the more intent and the more consciousness you can put around the, in, the ingesting of these, especially in a therapeutic setting, the better. At the same time, mushrooms are literally the safest of all drugs. David Nutt at the Imperial College in London, he put together this scale of drugs by danger. Alcohol was the most dangerous. Heroin was oh. the next one. And mushrooms were literally the safest. Like you can't overdose on them. You, you know, you might have the worst that's going to happen is if you, you have a challenging experience. But oftentimes with these challenging experiences, you come out the other end and you're like, actually, I learned a lot from that challenging experience. And, and one of the uh, unique uh, uh, anecdotal statistics is that uh, people regard uh, uh, taking magic mushrooms in, in, in a prescribed or in a manner uh, dosage that's recommended um, as one of the top five. Uh, experiences of their life, like mm -hmm. where it's something that's, uh, I think for many, uh, very hard to describe the process, but uh, in the context of, of, of this podcast, which is uh, refugees and, and uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. So a lot of people have these uh, mental health issues, whether it's from trauma from war or being a refugee or even just trauma here in North America. It could be uh, a car accident or, or bullying or, or rape. And uh, by having these natural medicines to, to help people with this kind of trauma um, rather than these very addictive uh, 
uh, Xanax and mm-hmm. antidepressants, which which even lead to suicide. So I'll, I'll just give you some statistics, Trevor. There's approximately uh, 70 million refugees and forcibly displaced people in the world today. Wow. In nine years, that's 300 million. And uh, these folks, uh, studies have been done to say that one in 10 uh, will suffer from chronic post-traumatic stress disorder, and that's two in 10 for children. Uh, and these numbers are skewed heavily uh, in different circumstances. So a lot of refugees just might be moving around. They might not face uh, all the traumas of war. Uh, but a study was done on Syrian Kurdish refugees, so folks who are really facing a lot of challenges from all angles. And the rates of post-traumatic stress was over 90%. Wow. And the rate of depression was at 60%. So these are tens of thousands of people. And, you know, in uh, Turkey today and in Idlib, uh, 500,000 of the uh, refugees that or the forcibly displaced people that just appeared in the last couple of weeks because of the war there uh, were our children, our children. Wow. So we're talking about potentially hundreds of thousands of people who are just currently getting post-traumatic uh, stress and the solutions for them are just aren't there. Yeah, so let me, you know, put a little ray of hope on that then. So MAPS, which is the organization that I'm associated with, was started in the U.S. by Rick Doblin in around 1986, I believe. MAPS stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And MAPS has done, I'd say arguably again, perhaps, but more to legitimize these medicines than any other kind of mainstream organization. They are a nonprofit. They are only the second nonprofit in history to take a drug through the very expensive drug development process. So phase one, two, and three clinical trials, that's normally a big pharmaceutical company who stands to make billions of money, billions of dollars off of these processes, uh, these medicines that they're creating that have patents on them. Rick Doblin has taken this non-patentable medicine, the patent has expired, and taken it through the drug development process to use MDMA, which is the active ingredient in the street drug ecstasy, to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. So phase one is basically a safety study and just to prove mild efficacy, which isn't too many people. Phase two is a few more people. And in the phase two study, it needed to be complex, untreatable post-traumatic stress disorder as well. So uh, PTSD that hasn't been treated by anything else, nothing else is working. So, and it's important to say that it's uh, psychedelically assisted psychotherapy. So it's in conjunction with a, you know, a larger context of having therapy as well. But the protocol is to do three sessions with MDMA, one month apart. And at the end of that phase two study, 78% of the participants no longer qualify as having PTSD. So there's tests that you can take to kind of test where somebody's at as far as their PTSD and 78% no longer qualify. Trevor, I I also heard that uh, the U.S. military was looking into this for veterans. For sure. So those are, it was, uh, it was veterans and first responders were definitely part of those numbers for that 78%. They were a part of this phase two study. I'm not sure exactly how many. And these are very high success rates. Yeah. 78% is huge huge, because really, you know, 
PTSD is very hard to treat. It's hard to get those kind of numbers. And this numbers. 78% rate was for PTSD that has failed at being uh, cured from all other methods. From all the other so methods. So this is the hardest, hardest yeah, form. In order to get into the study, everything else had to fail wow. already. So 78% is huge. The FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the States, they have a lot of pretty cool people working there lately, and they've helped Rick bring this medicine through. And because really a not, a, you know, nothing else is working, the FDA has given for the phase three study. And after a phase three study is complete, then the medicine can actually become a prescription. They gave it breakthrough therapy status at the FDA. So that really helps them cut through a lot of red tape and make the phase three study happen a lot quicker. So right now the phase three study is well underway. There's multiple countries involved, uh, multiple sites. Vancouver has a site. I believe Montreal has a site as well. And at the end of that, the MDMA will be a prescription. And wow. it's also been given... Um, expanded access in the U.S. So that means that because this is being this is so successful right now, they have opened it up so more people outside of just the phase three study can start receiving this treatment as well. So um, within three or four years, MDMA is going to be available as a prescription. Wow! In the in the United States? In the United States, and then. We're expecting Canada should follow quickly. Just like thereafter. what we've seen with the the cannabis laws, where where now multiple states have, have legalized in the United States for cannabis, Canada, and so in a similar fashion, are are you? Uh, this will e this will be even more robust. Uh, not, m maybe not robust, but more widely available because you know on a state by state basis, cannabis is kind of getting decriminalized at the federal level, it's still an issue. This will, at the federal level, make... At, right from the get-go. Yeah, right from the get-go. will make MDMA available as a prescription again. It's not like street, you know, it's not like ecstasy is going to be legal all of a sudden no, to go no. rave on, but yeah. you'll be able to do... Uh, like I say, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is what will be legal. And now... Um Psilocybin, I'd read that even 80% success rates to quit smoking. Like, uh, yeah. like that, that uh, you and I discussed that. Actually, you told me about that. And tell me about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure of that statistic. It's around, it's a very high statistic, again, compa especially compared to other methods to help you quit smoking. But that was a Johns Hopkins study, I believe, which is yeah. a university in Baltimore. And they, they've been studying psychedelics for a long time. They were the first people to get permission I believe in the early 90s to study psilocybin again after a long point where nobody could even research psychedelics. But back into the 60s, Johns Hopkins was essentially Spring Grove where a lot of um, psychedelic research was taking place back in the 60s even. So they... They did a study on smoking cessation, and after a year, yeah, the majority of people had not picked up smoking again. And I always found it interesting that when they kind of dig into is why, why, well, why do you feel like you quit smoking after taking something like mushrooms? Uh, psilocybin is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. It's just a synthesized version that they use for these studies. But people basically realize, well, why would I put that garbage into my body? They kind of see the beautiful thing that life is and the gift that they've been given. And it's almost just, it becomes a, a, 
you know, why would I do that to myself anymore? So, like, in your view, what is it about these uh, these medications or these plant-based medications that that help people mm-hmm. like what it because it seems to be across the board there's a lot of benefit mm-hmm. for different uh, psychological problems including addiction for sure the metaphor i always use is it's like as we're living we see life through a filter it's almost like we're seeing life through a pane of glass that is inside of us and as we live our heart gets broken we suffer traumas we suffer indignities and that glass gets dirty and It gets so dirty that we don't even notice that it's dirty anymore. And if you have severe PTSD, then that glass gets really, really dirty. But, you know, I don't know that there's any any such thing as a, a... ultimately normal and healthy person in this society right now. We're all suffering indignities from this consumer culture, which always says that we're not enough and we need to work harder to be of value. So... Uh, Gabor Mate is a relatively famous doctor. His latest book is going to be called The Myth of Normal. And that really kind of sums up the fact that everybody's pane of glass is dirty. And I think that a good psychedelic psychotherapy session, it's not like it adds anything to you, but it just cleans that glass from the inside out. And once that glass has been cleaned up a bit, then you're like, oh, actually life is awesome oh i am capable oh i do have the tools i need in order to make my life happen in a better way and i think that's uh i think that's a pretty good metaphor for what's happening across the board with the medicine i work with ibogaine in particular it's the only medicine we know of that really affects the opioid receptors and can really help somebody who's affected with opioid use disorder. And, and opioids, they would be fentanyl, uh, heroin, yeah. uh, opium. Yeah. Would cocaine All also of those. be an opioid? No. Uh, so opia, opioids are generally related to the poppy. So poppy, again, a plant medicine. Yeah. There's nothing you would ro- want more on the battlefield than some morphine. You know, sure. it's, it's, it's all within the context. Relief. It's, and, and you know, anything can and be abuse. used properly. Anything can be abused. So, sure. yeah. you know, it's I like don't want to like demonize like a knife. opiates. A knife, a knife can be means. used to cut and chop food or it could be used exactly, to... Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I like what you brought up about the... Um, the challenges of civilization, you know, being a cause for dirtying, uh, dirtying the window, as it were. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you know John Zerzan. Uh, mm-hmm. So my brother, he's he's really into kind of um, traditional living uh, from a perspective of being a fully human person. And part of city life, it detracts from that just by its nature. Mm-hmm. Um, like the downtown east side, we all had the experience uh, of being there and seeing what those people are, are suffering from and what they're going through. For many of our uh, our listeners, many of our audience, they might not, they might know what it's like to see that kind of suffering, but they might not know what it's like to feel uh, the effects or the experience. They might not have tried, they might not have been familiar. If you don't mind just taking a few minutes and like maybe guide us through what it is like to actually experience uh, using ibogaine or, or um, pseudocybin. For sure. So the word ineffable always comes up around psychedelic experiences, which means it's really hard to put words to. And and not one experience is the same as the next one. Everyone's individual. Everybody's different. But um, Iboga itself is generally called oniric, so as related to dreams. So it's almost a very dreamlike 
circumstance, um, you take the medicine. I always say that the first eight to 12 hours are where all the bells and whistles are. That's the point where you might be shown visions. I'll, I'll explain what some of my, some of my clients have described to me. For one, I had one woman describe that she was taken down to the cellular level to show what the opiates do to her cells and then what the ibogaine is doing. So it showed that the opiate sticks to the opioid receptor and then when there's no opiate on there, it's going to call out and crave for more. And when the ibogaine comes in, it scrubs that receptor and brings it to an opiate naive level as if it's never had an opiate before. Iboga is often considered an ancestor medicine. That's definitely one of the ways it's considered in Africa, in uh, Gabon, in the Bwiti tradition. And I've had many people, myself included, on an Iboga journey um, visit with their ancestors. I visited with my grandparents and got a pretty huge lesson from my grandparents that led me to stop drinking alcohol about four years ago on on a regular basis anyway. Um, I had one gentleman who said that he, and he was kind of very atheistic. You, you might even call him a redneck. He was a, a hunter from Washington state who was hooked on opiates, unfortunately. And he came up and he said, yeah, there, at one point I was walking down this road and it was a road seemingly with millions of people on it. And I'm walking, and as I'm walking, the woman in front of me turns around, and I see it's my mother, but it's not my mother from this life. It's the same per- the same entity, but she was also my mother in a previous life. Wow. So another, if you've seen the movie Minority Report. With Tom Cruise. With I've Tom seen. Cruise, when he's scanning yeah. through the digital files and yeah. he's kind of moving his, and then he stops and he pulls one file out and expands it and he can look deeper. That's a very common experience for people on Iboga is you can go through, you can scan large portions of your life. You can grab one of them. You can bring it closer. You can expand it. You can dig deeper into what was actually happening. Um with with psychedelics in general you might maybe there was a traumatic event in your childhood let's say something happened and your mother really freaked out at you that time and you've never been able to let that go and it's really stuck with you with a psych a good psychedelic experience you might revisit that experience but more from kind of a third person perspective and then you're like oh actually mom was having a bad day wow mom was having a bad year okay i get why she behaved that way and then it, that allows you to forgive that and once that forgiveness happens then it doesn't have that emotional wow. charge that lends itself to that traumatic feedback loop that is kind of post-traumatic stress disorder and, and depression anxiety and mental health issues it's almost like these uh, the opposite of greatest hits the the worst experiences of mm-hmm. life are on a replay and it's not just the image or the sound it's also the feeling of it and so people repeat the the worst things that happened to them somebody said something somebody did something to them and then they repeat that totally. whole emotional experience again and again and again and there's a term I, I just heard uh, from our previous guest uh, Tony Michalier of a former uh, a neo-nazi and he was talking about uh, death by despair and the uh, uh, 
high rates of suicide mm-hmm. every year are increasing uh, by people that have death by despair. There, And even another statistic that, that blew my mind, a lot of people start uh, getting into uh, opioids in their 40s. It's not something that teenagers, it's like people... I just treated a guy. I just really? treated a guy. Okay. Um, yeah, we went out of country to do it. Huh. But... Uh, he, that was, that was his experience is he didn't start till he was around 40. He came into a bunch of money yeah. and started at a later age. And, 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 and he came but I always say hell is a feedback loop. Yeah. Hell is a feedback loop. It's just this, you cannot escape these repetitive thoughts and emotions and feelings that come up that, you know, anything can trigger you back into that feedback loop and you just can't escape. And these, these medicines are really good at pressing reset on those feedback loops. And Tark, so I I just looked it up. The World Health Organization says 800,000 people die from suicide every year. In North America. In the world. In the the world. world. 800,000. 800,000. And, and a lot of these are these psychological issues these kind of negative feedback loops that just keep repeating itself and almost like what the psychedelics do, it's kind of like interrupts the pattern and reboots the system. Yeah, and I, you asked earlier if cocaine was a opiate. It's not, it comes from the coca plant, but it still, it still does something for a person like Gabor Mate again. He says, the question is, not why the addiction, but why the pain that the person is trying to avoid. And you need to, for a lot of people, I've met people who have, who said, look, heroin saved my life. Cocaine saved my life. I would have killed myself a long time ago if I didn't at least get this partial relief from what the cocaine gave me. Um, these medicines work, re- work well to interrupt cocaine addiction as well. Um, Iboga does work, but Iboga would be a fairly large investment. It's, you know, I generally bring people in for about 10 days at a time. We would have doctors and nurses involved. So you're looking at about $8,500 to do that. To go through that process. Yeah, whereas um, as long as you can detox for about a week before from alcohol and or cocaine, then to do something like a therapeutic psilocybin session, it has the same potential to interrupt the pattern. And from what you were saying before, people have to want it. Like, it's not like, you know how some families are like, oh, my son has this problem. You got to help him. But the son doesn't want to change or the daughter. And so it's like the person has to be willing to to do it. It's not like the person has to show up in a space that they do have the addiction. They admit they have the addiction. They want that help. They can't just be like somebody's forcing them to do it. I would get, when I was actively operational, I would get so many parents calling, wanting treatment for their kids. And And 8,500 bucks is like a a bargain to get somebody's life back. Yeah, especially, you know, in in comparison to a 30-day treatment, which doesn't necessarily work, which might have a maximum. 10 grand for these detox houses. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... But yeah, I w- I, while I was operational, I was very hesitant to treat anyone under 25 years of age. I found that there's still a bit of a romance involved if you haven't been down the, the road long enough. So if I did treat somebody younger than 25, they would really need to convince me that they wanted it. And I, I would always say to people, look, you're auditioning for this until the moment I give you medicine and, and vice versa. They're auditioning me. And if any point they want to pull out, 
I would always say like, I've got veto power to cancel this at any time if I don't think that you actually want this because it's a waste of the medicine, which I deem sacred as well. And a it, lot of time. Yeah, it's a waste of time, a waste of money. And I like having uh, a good success rate. And it's interesting you chose uh, 25 because neurologically the brain doesn't uh, fully develop until right, 25. I know, right? <laughs> uh, interesting. I, I met a uh, an RCMP officer in in Surrey and he was talking about uh, uh, cannabis and how cannabis from what he sees that he wished that the legalization would be 25 because he felt that uh, younger people are still not able to process yeah. the, uh, the, uh, the the uh, cannabis. I know people would disagree with me, but but uh, but that was his viewpoint uh, from his personal view, and I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's wise advice to give everybody. At the same time, I just don't think prohibition works in the least. So. Don't well, well, like don't the Portugal model it. of decriminalizing <laughs> yeah. all drugs yeah. as a way to 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 regulate it, um, to 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 uh, and 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 the Port- Portugal model has brought down addictions mm-hmm. by uh, by two thirds by by decriminalizing it and making it uh, kind of like a health issue for the state, mm-hmm. and then like you said, the romance of something illegal versus something that, you know, it's like you can do it or not do it, but the government's there to help you with whatever. Uh, recovery you may need. Yeah, yeah. So you brought up Dr. Gabor Mate a couple of times, and uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, he's uh, uh, very well known, and he was actually on the, the first time I heard about uh, psychedelics on the Tim Ferriss podcast was an interview with Dr. Gabor Mate. Oh, cool. What, what I didn't know was he was from Vancouver. He'd work on the downtown east side. And then he talked about ayahuasca and he was talking about shamans and this, that, and the other thing. And I thought it was a little bit out there. I thought it was like a far out there kind of episode uh, because I was like, okay, shamans, ayahuasca, the ritual, a ceremony. It seemed kind of bizarre, but, but, you know, he's got, you know, his pedigree, he's got his background and he was just saying that these ayahuasca journeys really also help uh, deal with mental health, uh, recovery, uh, addiction recovery. So we've talked about ibogaine, we've talked about psilocybin, we've talked about MDMA. What about ayahuasca? Yeah, ayahuasca is a Peruvian plant medicine. It, again, has been used ceremonially for centuries. It's interesting because it's the combination of a couple of plants. There is the ayahuasca vine, is generally used as well as a plant that contains DMT. So all of our systems contain DMT. DMT is in every living thing as far as I know. It's just not generally active enough to be experienced. So uh, ayahuasca is an orally active form of DMT. And the way that it becomes orally active is it's a plant that contains the DMT mixed with a plant like the ayahuasca vine, which contains an inhibitor, which prevents the DMT from being digested too quickly within the system. Normally, if you just took DMT alone, you wouldn't even feel it orally because your stomach acid would destroy it. But this has a MAO inhibitor in it so that it becomes an orally active form of DMT, which puts you again on about a four to six hour long journey. And DMT is a highly psychedelic substance. Like it is kind of classically psychedelic with the fractals and the visions and the the 
you know, inspirations. And it it is often said that ayahuasca herself has a personality and has a spirit that comes with with it, which is often described as feminine. And in fact, what the first time I ever this, I think it was the second time I ever tried ayahuasca. I walked into this yurt, which is a, you know, a structure often used for ceremony. And I was lying against the wall and I looked up and there was a, a picture of Jesus there. And I, I was raised in a Christian family and I stepped away from the church, but through my experience of kind of spirituality since then, I've made peace with the figure Jesus, at least. I'm not sure I'll ever make peace with the Christian church itself, but I, I, I but appreciate your own uh, spirituality, your own spiritual connection. Yeah. So I have a connection to him and I was praying. I was, you know, it's always, you always have trepidation going into these experiences. So I was just looking up at Jesus and praying and kind of praying to a male entity. And then as the medicine came on, <laughs> I just felt this entirely feminine presence go, well, will I do? <laughs> I just started <laughs> laughing out loud. I'm like, yeah, you will do. Thank you. But ayahuasca again is profoundly healing. It's, it's really, I think one of the medicines that has brought this psychedelic renaissance forward in such a powerful way because so many people have maybe traveled to Peru or found local, yeah, Peru or Brazil, gone to the Amazon to do ayahuasca. And uh, it's really helped change the conversation. So yeah, another beautifully powerful medicine. uh, from my understanding, are reflected in their art and the carvings in their temples. Uh, it, it's it's also part of their their culture and part of the, part of their art and part of their expression. And so so it's it's interesting how they've they've maybe you know uh, reading about the Mayans, the Aztecs, Aztecs, the Olmecs, and uh, their cultures and uh, how they would. Uh, how would they function as a society? And I think uh, these psychedelics were part of their culture and part of their society. Um, and it reflects in their, mm-hmm. in their art. There's some beautiful ayahuasca-inspired art, even m- more modern art. Uh, I think the art of Alex Gray, you can look him up online. I think if you look at his art, you'll get a, a pretty generally good idea of what it's like to be on DMT because he, I feel like his art especially kind of speaks to the the essence that you experience when you're on DMT. But there's other there's other modern ayahuasca artists that you can check out as well. And then, you know, you mentioned you mentioned the the Mayans. I think I'm not sure that I've seen any art there that would be definitely dis- that I would associate with ayahuasca, but mushrooms, absolutely. There's there's artwork and carvings that seems to indicate that they revered mushrooms at a sacred level and cultures like that. Is there a difference uh, in effectiveness of the different types of uh, psychoactive uh, medicines for different um, kind of uh, illnesses? So is or would you use something different for, say, addiction or PTSD or if you wanted to overcome childhood trauma versus alcohol addiction? I think so. Um, I Iboga and ibogaine, as we've already discussed, it's it really hits at home for opiate use disorder. Um, I th- MDMA, I think, is really great for post-traumatic stress disorder specifically because MDMA is, 
you know, it is the street drug ecstasy. It it's it's heart centered. It opens people up. It kind of comes with this loving feeling that then allows you to look at some of those more traumatic events in your life. So I think we're on the right track with MDMA for PTSD. Psilocybin is being studied for treatment resistant depression right now as well. It was given breakthrough therapy status for the M uh, for um, from the FDA. So, it, so treatment resistant depression. So basically somebody's depressed and they're just depressed and they nothing is helping them not the antidepressants that that are legal the 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 Xanax the yeah. uh, the Prozac treatment that are in our fish now by the way what's up <laughs> it's in the fish so in rivers they found yeah. it in fish because people flush it down the toilet so and it goes in the streams <laughs> and, and so so when somebody's determined to be depressed and uh, and and nothing else is helping these are the people that they're doing these these tests on. Yeah, so treatment-resistant depression, you need to have tried everything else, like you say. And it, it as well was given breakthrough therapy status for the phase three because the phase two was so effective at helping people. Um, and then LSD has a great history. It, Canada was very big into psychedelic research in the 60s. late 50s, early 60s. And it, a lot of that happened out of Weyburn, Saskatchewan. Humphrey Osmond, who was an English doctor who actually coined the term psychedelic, he did that while he was working in Canada. In Canada, yeah, he coined the term. He termed the, yeah, coined the term there. But they were doing massive studies on people with LSD. LSD, they had the option to work with all of the medicines and they seem to have really focused in on LSD and its effectiveness, but they had, they treated LSD alcoholism with LSD. They treated more than 700 patients with a more than 50% success rate. And I've, uh, my old business partner, he had an experience with LSD as well. He couldn't stop drinking. He would, he tried all the meetings. He tried everything else. He would always make it about six months sober was as far as he could get. And then he would fall off the wagon. And that helped happened numerous times until the last time where around that six month mark, he took a massive dose of LSD. And he said before the sun came up, he knew that he would never drink again. And it's been more than 15 or 16 years now. So for all of these um, avenues, Trevor, is is it just the medicine that is causing this or is it as part of a... uh, part of a healing process. Yeah, so I think I think that's more what it is. I think these medicines are gateways to allow our own inner healer to come out in full force. It's like our there's an incredible healing intelligence within our bodies. Like we cut our arms. We don't have to think about how am I going to mend that cut on my arm? If it's just a small scrape or whatever, you might need stitches to bring it back together, but then the body kicks in and there is an incredible intelligence that's going to do the work. I think psychologically what these medicines do is they just let that natural intelligence come out uh, to a higher degree than we're, than our conscious minds generally will allow to happen. So Dr. Uh, Gabor Mate, he calls it compassionate inquiry, mm-hmm. right? So to open up the mind to be able to heal itself mm-hmm. in the compassionate way. Right? And, and Trevor, because you, you, you're an expert in this area, you, you've studied it, you've been a part of the community. Where do you see it going from here? Where do you see 2020 um, with 
all this effort and focus and investment in uh, in helping people deal with mental health issues, deal with uh, addiction and post-traumatic stress disorder. Where do you see it going from here, from 2020 onwards? Um, where do you think uh, psilocybin, ibogaine, ayahuasca, MDMA, where do you think all of these processes and, and uh, psychedelic uh, resources can come into the mainstream and help the vast majority of people. I think one statistic I read, one out of three people have mental health issues. One out of three people. Maybe more than that. Yeah, <laughs> at, least. So, at least. So it's, I think it's that's a, being generous. It's being generous. <laughs> it depends on how, you know, <laughs> what symptoms do they have. Are you, my, uh, Thoreau famously said many years ago, uh, most people live lives of a quiet, quiet desperation. desperation. We talked yeah. about that. Yeah. 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 I yeah. read about that when I was younger, and I was like, that's an interesting concept. You really understand it as you get older. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding, right? Um, so I think the path forward is, for one, I think I remember thinking to myself probably six months ago now that, wow, we are, as somebody who's kind of been eyeballing this space at a professional level for about the last 10 years, we are way farther ahead right now than I would have thought we would By be. this time. Yeah, I think we're at least five years ahead of where I would have suspected we were at. Um, the science, the science has already won. The, these will become medicines within the medical framework at least. MDMA is coming, psilocybin is coming, more will follow, more money is going into research to make that happen. That's already won, that's gonna happen. How do we keep this available at a cost-effective level to the common person? I think that still needs to be uh, and considered and figured out. And I think some people, you know, when they term uh, psychedelic drugs, right, there's a connotation uh, of, you know, do I want to go down that route? And sometimes people view psychedelics in the same, as we talked about earlier, as as other drugs like uh, like cocaine or heroin or that sort of thing. So to, to really educate the public of what the differences are and what the benefits are and why. Yeah. And and I think you, you, you talked about David Nutt and how I, I watched that uh, interview with him on YouTube saying alcoholism caused more health and and the causes of suicide and, and other uh, uh, harms to an individual and their families and society than than mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah, there's and no such thing as fetal mushroom syndrome. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's true. Um, I, yeah, the war on drugs was a very effective propaganda campaign yeah. that really scared a lot of people. And, and I classified think everything as one th as one right. thing where, where there's... Drugs are drugs, yeah. Yeah. Where, where they're not at all. Um, well, drugs are drugs and, they're, and drugs are bad. Where what is amazing is how much belief people have in, in uh, pharmaceutical medications that, uh, again, the statistics, uh, mm. uh, the fourth leading cause of death in North America's improper prescription and usage and dosages of, of pharmaceutical medications. Yeah. So iatrogenesis is a word everybody should should learn and know. Iatrogenesis is when the medical system or medicine that you've been prescribed actually causes more harm than good, which yeah. is very very common. But I think you know, to go back to your last question is we still need to work towards decriminalization. Nobody should be going to jail for these things. If if they grow out of 
a pile of crap? Hasn't nature legitimized them enough? <laughs> I really feel the arrogance of man and some of man-made man-made laws when they try and outlaw plants. Like, no, God said, you know, God gave the ability of these plants to grow. Let's just let them do that at least and not put people in jail for using their healing benefits. There is a decriminalization initiative that's really happening across North America in particular right now. Oakland was one of the first municipalities to decriminalize plant medicines at a municipal level, making it a lowest law enforcement priority for local authorities there. Santa Cruz has done the same. There's other U.S. cities. We had a motion. There was a motion in Vancouver that we got shot down. It was against psilocybin mushrooms and a website had claimed that a website was selling microdoses, which is a, a low dose of mushrooms, which is a good antidepressant as an example. They were selling these microdoses on the website. It said that they were going to eventually open a Vancouver dispensary. So a city councillor created a motion against this, uh, against psilocybin essentially. And it read like a page out of the failed war on drugs playbook. It talked about injectable psilocybin, which is not a real thing. It talked about cartels making all this money on mushrooms, which is which not has happening. Never happened. Yeah. Which has never happened. So we we did we launched a website, decriminalizenature.ca, which is still up now. And we allowed through that website people could send letters to Vancouver City Councilors in opposition to this motion and more than 750 people did do that and about a dozen of us showed up to speak on September 11th of last year in order to uh, speak against this motion. Nobody spoke in favor of it and the motion did get shot down. We saw through that process that we had a couple city councillors that were on our side as it were and we've met with uh, one of those councillors and he is open to doing a decriminalization motion in Vancouver as well. So we're just waiting on the timing on that and we may not have to do that because in the meantime, Canada has a really cool e-petition site at the federal level where you can have a petition drafted. You pick a member of parliament from the drop-down menu to select somebody who might stand behind this petition. And then all you need is 500 signatures in order for this petition to be read in the House of Commons. So we have a petition drafted that we've actually been working in conjunction with the Green Party MP from Nanaimo, Paul Manley, and he has approved this petition for decriminalization of all the plant medicines, and we're just timing it. It's going to be around, uh, I think, around April 2nd or so of this year, 2020, we will launch this petition. And like I say, all you need is 500 signatures. We've got that covered already, but we want a million signatures. We wow. want this to be the, the biggest e-petition yet. So we're going to start a pretty big campaign around that. So I encourage all your listeners to go to decriminalizenature.ca right now, put their email address in, and then they will be notified as soon as this petition goes live so that they can si sign it. Because I think just with, with the way the conversation globally is going around these medicines right now, there's actually a chance that we could get some laws changed in, in Canada. And, and I think uh, big business to, to look at the opportunity that uh, 
these natural uh, plant-based medicines can help people with these lifelong mental illnesses that uh, everyone has experienced either themselves or somebody close to them. And just kind of going back in the arc of our conversation to the refugees, now the refugees, many of them have come, uh, some have adjusted very well. The, the, the first girl that we interviewed, she's uh, a model student, a straight-A student. She's uh, also giving back on the downtown east side. She volunteers daily uh, because she goes, I know what it's like to be homeless. I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to be unwanted. And I want to help daily to give food and clothing Beautiful. and whatever I can to the people there. Now, that's a, that's a model example. But then there are people, like she had mentioned, that uh, become victims. They become a victim of what happened to them, the trauma. You know, again, we I haven't been through that uh, uh, a situation where you've seen family members or, or friends or communities die in front of you. So it's easy for us to say, get over it and move on. This trauma is with these people. And to have solutions beyond uh, uh, counseling that could potentially heal them of, of these, these traumatic war uh, induced uh, mental illnesses. And so uh, I'm excited to have you here to talk about it because a lot of people may not be aware that these solutions are that exist and that it is in process of becoming eventually into the mainstream. Yeah, I actually met, I was sitting, I go to the, the sauna in East Vancouver um, Britannia Community Center and I was sitting in it was the steam room actually and there was a conversation happening between two gentlemen and one of those guys was a refugee and he was describing his symptoms and I could tell that these were post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms and I'm just sitting there you know, saying to myself just be quiet just be <laughs> quiet but then I just couldn't I'm like look let's get together and chat because I may have access to some tools that could help you and I was able to put him in touch with uh, people that were able to help him through the use of medicines like this so I've seen it happen firsthand to people in the situation you know the refugees um, be remarkably helped by plant medicines. So again, I think the community context is very important. It's one thing to be able to provide these in a, in a doctor's office. It'd be another thing if you could get a whole bunch of people together supporting two or three people going through a journey like this to really let people know that they are supported, to feel the opposite of having been pushed out of something to really bring them into something. I've, I started my company Liberty Root because I wanted to help the downtown east side. So we would always do pro bono work for people who live particularly in that neighborhood. But I was smart enough to know that you don't just want to pluck somebody out of that neighborhood, give them a medicine like this and drop them back in. So we created a big community context in order for people to experience aftercare. these. Aftercare. Yeah, aftercare and even pre-care. Like we, yeah. were, we would work with them for three months before we would give them any medicine. And I think that's, that's the model that needs to be you know, really adopted is it's it's the fractured community. It's the sense of loneliness that so many people are having. If you just if you just provide medicines like this and then don't address any of those larger issues, then they're going to be back to where they started. So in many ways, the medicines are a catalyst. Yeah, yeah, they're beautiful and catalysts. And so, um, and this all started with your intention that I want to help people. And I think all of us here in the same kind of intention, 
how can we help within our ability and our capacity? Your journey has been many years, and now things are starting to see daylight where so many people are, are getting around this this subject mm -hmm. of psychedelics to help with the, with addiction and mental health and post-traumatic stress. And uh, I'm excited to see how the future unfolds and how people can be helped because uh, it's not just the individual that suffers with post-traumatic stress disorder or mental health. It's their entire family, mm -hmm. their community. Mm -hmm. And so by, by one person getting better, their families, as a result, have a stable person at home that, that, that they're not on eggshells uh, because that person has gone through their, 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 their stress and they're reliving it every day. It's amazing. The ripple effects that I see, like, I'll, I'll be honest, the, it's interesting. The reason I reluctantly started giving back to the community, but it, it, as I mentioned earlier, I started reading a lot of books in my early 20s. I never went to university. I always had a chip on my shoulder that I, even though I didn't go to university, I'm going to be at least as successful as all of my friends that did go to university. So I started reading books like crazy, books on how to be successful, books on business, books on leadership, uh, Tony Robbins type stuff, um, quantum physics and, and spirituality. Tony Robbins has, uh, has done ayahuasca and uh, DMT and he's actually uh, one of the, the believers that these can really heal mental health issues yeah. and he's I think the leading I know he's done at least five MEO DMT which really helped him he said that he was never very good at helping people who are suffering terminal illnesses until after his five MEO DMT experience where huh. you often move you, you suffer an ego death and can kind of see what's beyond that and he's since then been able to help lots of people and and it was there was an interview with him and Mike Tyson the boxer yeah and, and the boxer says uh, you know after that I never want to hurt anybody I never want to it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Mike Tyson has gone through a religious conversion because of his experience with 5-MeO-DMT. It's really awesome. You should definitely check out some of those videos. But yeah. I, I, was, I was reading all these books for, to be successful for my egoic reasons. And at one point, I just stopped again dead in my tracks kind of as an act of grace, as I call it, and said, well, why am I reading all these books? And the answer came from somewhere, well, you want to be happy. I'm like, well, what do all these books say about being happy? And I thought about it for a while, and I realized that the happiest people, or at least the people that I would most want to emulate, seem to be helping a heck of a lot more people than I was. And I didn't like that. Like I, I had no social work type background. I had no intent around anything like that. But the hypothesis made sense. I'm like, you know what? It would feel really good to actually help somebody. And I don't think there would be any better feeling than that. So it's ironic that I think if you follow selfishness to its farthest degree, it turns into altruism. And that's really what happened to me. <laughs> And helping others, helps yeah, you. helping others, yeah, helps you. yeah. There's nothing that feels better that. And when I get those texts at Christmas time, I get the phone calls saying, "Man, I'm doing awesome." Oh my God! If I, I'm going to pull up my phone right now because I had a gentleman, I treated this guy twice. When I first treated him, he, I think he was 20 years old for opiate use disorder, and he uh, he ended up needing to come back for a second treatment. And that, that does happen sometimes. He relapsed. Nobody ever says that the Ibogaine didn't work for them, but they realized that they didn't kind of run with 
what the Ibogaine gave them. And especially given like their their lifestyle and the context and the friend groups and the yeah. city and the situations. Yeah, and then this guy has been the gift that just keeps on giving because his, his dad will text me and say thank you every now and then. He says it's so good. This one says... Dude, I forgot it was my four years around this time. I picked the 12th as my day, and I'm not exactly, but I've been opiate-free for four years now. And he sent me this remarkable text because he had a daughter who was recently born, and he had had a son that was born closer to... Um, while he was still using. So he wasn't really present for it. So he texted me. He said, I just want to say thanks again, man. There's something special this time with this newborn. I think it's because I wasn't so sober when my son was born. I just feel like I'm going to be a way better father raising a newborn now that I'm not, not that I'm not a good father to my son now, but I could have been way better if had I been in this state of mind when he was born. This has been very special for me. Fantastic. So that nothing feels better than that. You yeah. can't buy that kind of feeling. To help that person actually helped his entire family. Yeah, the ripples of benevolence that ha- help it happen from treating one person like this. It's really remarkable. So on that note, Trevor, thank you for coming to, to uh, UBC and uh, being here with your time and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge over the years that you focused on this area of helping people with plant-based medicine. So we applaud you for your work and thank you for for doing the good stuff and I've learned a lot from this conversation. Fantastic, eye-opening. And and I know there are some people with closed minds that view uh, psychedelics as drugs but if you look at it objectively these are natural plant-based solutions that can help somebody with mental health issues, addiction, post-traumatic stress, natural and in, in the guidelines as you had mentioned Um, I think a lot of people, millions, tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people can be helped um, and decriminalization and making it the mainstream. And I think part of government, but also big business to drive this forward um, uh, because obviously there are profit margins and that helps uh, bring these into the mainstream that much faster, like the cannabis kind of uh, explosion this last few years. And I think that's going to help drive uh, psychedelics forward and making the mainstream and accepted sources for these issues. So thank you, Trevor. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And, and God bless the work you're doing. It's thank awesome. you so thank much. You. Thanks, Thanks for bro. having me guys. If you have any questions related to the refugee portal podcast are interested in sponsorships, interviews, or ideas, please feel free to get in touch with us at refugeeportal.org or email us at info at 